Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Hey, I told you an old pastor story. It's probably been five or six years ago, and so you don't remember it. I'm trusting, but I'll, I'll tell it to you again. Uh, there's a, an old story I heard a long time ago about an old man and his grandson sitting on the front porch of his country home. He had his six dogs lined up on the porch with him. And as they sat there, the old man and his grandson and all the dogs In the distance, a rabbit, a little bunny like the ones we see all over Plano, sprung up out of the brush, looked at them all for a minute, and then darted back into the brush. And when that happened, one of the dogs perked up, let out a bark, and took off into the brush after the rabbit. And immediately, as soon as that happened, the other five dogs leapt up and tore off after the first dog, barking and yapping and going after him. And as they left, the grandpa looked at his grandson and said, Listen, son, I'm going to tell you exactly what's about to happen here. What's going to happen is that that group of five dogs that took off in a few minutes are going to start to come back one by one with their heads hanging down and their tongues hanging out and lay back down on the porch. But in a little while longer, that first dog who took off, he'll come back and he'll have the rabbit in his mouth. And sure enough, this is exactly what happened. The five dogs one by one came back, laid back down on the porch, looking bored and lazy, and that first dog came back a little while later with the rabbit. And the grandson looks at his granddad and says, how did you know that was going to happen? And the grandpa said, well, you see, what happened is that first dog was the only one who actually saw the rabbit. The other five just went barking because they saw the excitement. And I tell you this because I think if we're really honest, that's how a lot of people came to church. It's how a lot of people came to Christianity It had a lot more to do with the noise and the excitement of something called cultural Christianity, which is superficial and slogan-based, where faith is a a fad and salvation is like a style of life and praise is just something like a phase we go through. And where that happens, the gospel only takes hold of a person on a superficial level. And if it remains that way and nothing ever changes, then those people become like the five dogs who really didn't see anything. They really didn't have a personal experience or encounter with anything. They just ran after the noise. And so those people, like the dogs, will come back tired and be left unsatisfied, right? When that happens and where that happens, I find that faith falls apart for people and and confusion and cultural controversy begins to take over. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Grab your Bible and turn to 1 John in your New Testament. We'll be there for the next six weeks studying the book of 1 John. 1 John is a letter written by, can anyone guess? Okay, you're, you're up and alert this morning. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, the Apostle John, who was once the elder of the churches at, at Ephesus. John is writing this as a letter to the churches throughout the area of Ephesus. And funny enough, the churches in this region are going through some of the same kind of challenges that we're experiencing today in American Christianity, in the American church. Controversy has torn through their church as large groups of people who were a part of the church and call themselves Christians 
have now begun to move out from the church. They really have some misunderstandings and distortions of the gospel that they've locked onto. And large groups of them have begun to leave the church. And even though they're leaving the church, they still feel like they ought to have influence or control over the people that they've left behind. And some of the people they've left behind also have misunderstood the gospel and what it means and and what it's about. And and they're hearing all of these voices speaking into them about what's true, but all of the voices contradict one another, and they keep seeming to move the line around for what it really means to be a Christian. Does any of that sound familiar at all to you? It should. Um, Someone in our church, a guy named Jacob Pierce, if you know him, Jacob's amazing, He's on our Connect team. He's a life group leader. Jacob sent me an article a couple of months ago that I absolutely loved because it put into words something that we all have been experiencing and watching and listening to for, I mean, well over a decade, but especially it's, it's turned up over the last couple of years. And I don't think it's happening in a massive way in Legacy Church, though it probably is just quietly. We've all watched and seen churches being torn apart and and fragmenting across our nation in all different kinds of ways. And what I mean is we've seen some groups of people, pastors and churches, preaching something that looks more like a Christian nationalism. Do you know know what I'm talking about? It's where they exchange the the, uh, swaddling clothes in the manger for an American flag and wrap Jesus in an American flag because politics and power have been so infused with their version of the gospel. That's one group. There's another group of people who just remember how things used to be. Remember when conservative morals seemed to be the norm and it kind of had a greater hold on the, the popular culture around us? And as they've seen moralism fail, which moralism will always fail, remember? For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Moralism always fails, but as it has failed in a widespread way and proven itself to be a failure, there are groups of people who go, I just want to hold on to the way it used to be, and I'll do anything. Just let me hold on to what we once had. It's another group. There are other groups of people who, who love Jesus. They still have their faith in him, but they've lost their faith in the church to be who we've called to be, been, who we've been called to be in this world, in, in this time. And they've said, I give up. Like, the church won't do it. They can't do it. I don't know. We'll have to find another way. So they put all their stock in social justice or in self-help or in something else to try to be wh- what they see the church not being. And then there's more people, you've, you've seen this, who... Maybe they love Jesus, but they said, I'm done with the church. I won't ever go back. And another group who say, you know, I'm done with the church. In fact, I think I'm also done with Jesus. And they're looking for something that to them seems more substantial and and more real, right? Well, I think as I watch this, and I've seen it play out at least over the last decade, but so much more recently, I think there's a lot of people who would look, look at us and say, I think that you're, you're, you're getting it all wrong. What you think about church, Kevin, and what you think about Christianity is really, really wrong. And I would say that I think it's probably true that a lot of times we have gotten it wrong, Christianity and what church is all about. We get it wrong whenever we make it about the wrong things. 
And John is looking at a church who's facing this kind of thing. They've been fragmented by all of these different views about the gospel and about what the church is supposed to be in the world. And how does a person live out their faith? It's one thing to think Jesus is cool, but it's another thing to live a life where everything you do is based upon who he is or or some kind of subculture that's been created because of that. And so you and I know because of our experience with this kind of thing in our time that this church or these churches around Ephesus were probably going through a lot of relational pain because we've seen that, right? We've experienced that, family members and friendships being torn apart because we thought we agreed but we don't agree anymore and now all of that is, is passing between us. We, we know that it leads to a lot of cultural confusion and we can assume in their day, not only with the, the fragmenting happening within the church, but the fact is they're living in an area that's a, a major trade route. It's a, a port town, and there are all kinds of ideologies from around the world being shared in Ephesus. And so there's a lot of cultural confusion. And probably what they don't understand, and maybe we don't, we don't maybe we underestimate, is that there's a lot at stake in a moment like this especially in the early, at any time, but especially in the early days of the church, when Christianity is such a new thing, why would anyone bother with Christianity at all if the people within it have no clue what it's really about and are already arguing about it? And so we want to ask a question and work on it this morning. The question is, how do we know, how do we know if, if what we're talking about when it comes to church and Christianity, how do we know if we're getting it right? How do we know if we're right to call ourselves Christians? John has a really important message for this church, and I think it's really important for us also. And and the message is that that Christianity in their time or or in our time, it really cannot be defined by culture, opposed to the far right or the far left. Culture doesn't determine what Christianity is and what Christianity does. John says there are two things that are going to determine Christianity for us. So how do we know if we're getting Christianity right? Let's look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. What John writes gives us two ways to know if we're on right track. Verse 1 says, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our own eyes, what we've looked at, what we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed and we've seen and we testify, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Do you want to know how you know when you're on the right track when it comes to Christianity. You know you're on the right track when it comes to Christianity when you're talking about the real Jesus. When that's the thing that you're talking about when it it comes to Christianity, when it's all about Him. If you get that right, everything else will eventually fall into place. If you get that wrong, there's a whole lot of trouble that will, will come. It all rises and falls on us knowing the real Jesus. And here's what John says. John says Christianity, 
It's not about a theory. It's not about a a philosophy or an idea. It's about an actual person. It's a person who lives and who has a real history with humanity. And this person, he is, is abundantly clear about what he is about and what he is not about. He doesn't leave it for us to decide, well, what, what did he think and what did he mean? No, he tells us exactly who he is and what he's about. And I want you to understand something. If the historical Jesus that we, we study, that we know, that we love, that we encounter in the Scriptures and by his Spirit, if he doesn't exist... If he was just a myth made up by the early Christians, if, my goodness, if he just is like the Jesus in my heart, but not in reality, then understand as a pastor, I'm telling you, Christianity is a big waste of time if that's true. And that's why John, in his first and biggest point to this church that is being ripped apart in this time is, it all rises and falls with us talking about a real living person named Jesus what was from the beginning, right? Do you remember how he started his gospel, John's gospel, chapter one, verse one? This is how he started it. John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word, and does it sound familiar already to our epistle? And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And he goes on and uses this as an introduction to introduce to his audience in the gospel the main figure of the story that he is writing, the testimony that he's giving is all about this person who is Jesus. And when he begins to write this letter to the churches of Ephesians, he says to them, what was from the beginning, again, Jesus. We heard Jesus. We saw Jesus. We touched Jesus. We know him. Who I am and what I'm about is directly related to me learning at the feet of Jesus Christ. My experience with him is so real, so palpable, and so compelling. It has made me who I am. So John walked with him. He said, what was from the beginning, that life was revealed to me. And we've seen, we testify, we proclaim to you. These are personal experiences. We proclaim to you the eternal life, and we want you to know him how we know him. We want you to know he who was with the Father in the beginning and revealed to us. And what did John know about Jesus That what was revealed to John about Jesus as he walked with him as one of Jesus' disciples, what kinds of things would John have learned during that time? Well, there's there's a lot, and I want to give you seven things this morning. Why seven? Because there's a lot more, because seven's about all I could fit on my page. So there's seven things that Jesus would have taught John as they walked day in and day out doing ministry and living life on the earth that I think are critical for all of us to know. Here's one thing that Jesus taught John about himself. Jesus said that he came down from heaven. John wrote about this in his gospel. He said, for, Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven. I left eternity to enter time, right? Timelessness to enter time. I left glory and I I came down and lived on earth. I put on flesh. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given me, I I would lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. That's one thing Jesus said about himself that John would have learned. Jesus came down from heaven. Here's another thing that Jesus said. Jesus said that he's more than just a good man. Do you remember the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, oh, good teacher, And Jesus looked at him and he said, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. Or in other words, he's challenging him and saying, do you know what you're saying when you call me good? 
Because if no one is good but God alone, when you call me good, either you're just trying to flatter me or you are recognizing that I am, I am God. And, and he would go on later and say, I and the Father are one. So Jesus said he's more than just a good man. Jesus said that he is God himself. Here's another thing Jesus said that John would have learned. Jesus said he has miraculous powers. If I do not do the works of my Father, well, don't believe me. That's fine. But if I do them, though you don't believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Believe the evidence. I will show you that I have power that no one else has. I have the power to give life. I have the power to overcome death. I have miraculous powers so that you can believe in me it's the evidence of my identity. There's another thing Jesus said. Jesus said that he's sinless. Which one of you convicts me of sin? He asks the crowd. He says, if I speak truth, why do you not believe me? Here's another thing Jesus said. Jesus said that he can forgive sins. We watched him do this over and over in the Gospels. Put a couple of references for you to look up. There's a man who is paralyzed, and Jesus heals him. There's a woman who is sick, and Jesus heals her. But these people came, and they laid all of their brokenness at his feet. They needed his help. They wanted his healing. Their life was in his hands. And he didn't only give them something that would help them temporarily. He said, your sins are forgiven. And in our, our text here in, in verse 7, John writes, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John learned that from walking with Jesus. Here's another thing that, that Jesus said. Jesus said that he would rise from, from death. And he began to teach them, the disciples he's teaching in this moment, that he, the son of man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And he would be killed. And after that, three days, he would rise again. He told that to John and the other disciples. And they witnessed it take place after the resurrection. We saw him. We heard him. We, we touched the wounds in his hands. John learned that firsthand from Jesus. What else did Jesus say? Jesus said that he is the only way to heaven. We know this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Listen, the reason I want to just make a list here, and obviously there's so much more John would have learned in his time walking with Jesus on earth, but I want you to see these things because it's so important for us to understand even in our season of fragmenting in the church that, that according to John, Christianity is not a system. It's not a self-help plan. It's not a theory. It's not a philosophy to be compared against other philosophies. It's a person. Christianity is a person, it's Jesus. And it's not the version of Jesus that people are selling. It's not consumeristic Jesus who gives you what you want, when you want, and his main concern is making you feel good all the time. It's not pragmatic Jesus who is reasonable and sensible and logical and he does things just according to, to reason just the way you think he would. He's not political Jesus who came here to fight a political battle or stand for one cause or another. He's not emotionalistic Jesus who's all heart but no head, and so you've got to check your brain at the door when it comes to faith. That's not him. And he's not cerebral Jesus who's all intellectual, all head but no heart. Jesus is who he says he is. John learned from Jesus who Jesus is, and John wrote about Jesus, the Word became flesh. The eternal life became flesh. He dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. He was full of grace. John, he reflects, he looks back. Golly, 
he was full of grace all of the time. And he was also full of truth all of the time. And those things never seemed to compromise each other. He was always full of grace and always full of truth. So understand, Christianity isn't about your truth or your version or account of the truth or how you think it ought to be. The real biblical historical Jesus, as we find in the Scriptures and as He's revealed to us in His grace and His truth, in His presence by His Spirit, that is what Christianity is. It's a person. So how do we know if we're getting Christianity right? And how do we know when we're talking about the church and I'm a Christian and this is what I believe? How do we know if we're on the right track? Well, we know we're on the right track if what we're talking about is the real Jesus, not something, something else. When the first thing that comes to mind when we hear the word church or we think about church or we hear the word Christian, it's about a person who lives a person who forgives, a person who gives life, a person who died, who resurrected, and who is our king. And not in a mythical, metaphorical sense is he our king, but in reality, he's the king of our life. And we recognize him as the king over all things who will one day return, and, and everyone will know, it will be unmistakable that he truly is the king of kings. It's about him. And too many people who call themselves a Christian when they, when they say, I'm a Christian and I go to church, what they're really thinking about is a politic or moralism or a style of life or a preference and how they think things ought to be in this world. And that's not Christianity. And I want you to make no mistake about this. Our church rises and falls on the, the real historical biblical Jesus as we find him in the scriptures, as we have encountered his grace personally, his truth personally by the Holy Spirit, and we only know that we're on the right track when we know what we're talking about. It's not some, some idea, some philosophy, but it's about a person. His name is Jesus. John shows us the second thing. How do we know? How do we know that we're talking about the same thing and the right thing when it comes to Christianity? Well, we get Christianity right when we make it about the real Jesus as the real solution to our real sins. That's the second thing John writes about. Look at verse 5. John writes, this is the message we have heard from him. We announce it to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, none. And this is great news. And for them, this is a little novel. It's not so plain to the people John is writing to. In Ephesus, the place is full of idols and full of portrayals of little g gods that are, I mean, they're about as evil as the people who are worshiping them. And so when John says, this is the fact that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, he's contrasting all the things that they see around them. And one of the things that was fracturing uh, the, the church at Ephesus is an early version of Gnosticism, which is this idea of these people who think that they have some special insights, like they have, they have the in with God and they know some things about God and what He likes and what He loves and what He wants that normal people like you and me, we just can't understand. We haven't been privy to that information. And, and this early form of Gnosticism didn't care about sin and repentance, didn't care about living a, a life that honors God didn't care about loving others, didn't care about grace. They just focused on we have some special knowledge and special insight that the everyday average, you know, church-going person doesn't have. 
And John combats it head on. He says, look, there are no lurking shadows with God. There is no hidden agenda. There's no small print. He says, God is light. And in him, there's how much darkness? None. There's no darkness, none. He's all light. Everything is revealed in the light of God. He is revealed in, the, in His Son, in the coming, the incarnation of Christ, the perfect pathway, not just to, to peace and reconciliation with, with God, but to eternal joy and to satisfaction. And in the light of God, in that presence of Christ, we're made safe from all of the things that threaten us in the dark. There's nothing hidden with God. You know, think about this. Even the sun has its dark spots, right? You remember that from school? Even the sun has its dark spots, but not so with God. In God, it's all light, all of it. And when John says this, one, he's undermining the Gnostic message that, hey, there's something that you've missed along the way. You've been fooled. You've been duped. It's not just about this Jesus and and the thing that you say. There's other stuff that you need to know. But he's also saying something about the character of God. He's talking about the moral perfection of God, that there is no sin, no mark, no blemish, no stain on the character of God. He's perfection in holiness. In him there is no darkness at all. John's posing here that because God is light, light is incompatible with the dark. It cannot exist with God. He's fully light. Or to be more like in your face, as John is, in your face, John says, God is righteous, and our sins are incompatible with His righteousness. That's what John is, is saying here. That God is all light, and there's no darkness in Him, and there's no room for darkness. There's no pla- it can't exist with Him, which creates a problem for us, right? For all have sinned. And the problem, the problem is what? The problem is us. And John writes about the problem in his gospel. And in John 3, he says, this is judgment. Listen to this. He says, this is judgment, that the light, God informed, Jesus comes, who is God. The light, Jesus has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? That's why I say it for fear that his deeds will be exposed. The fact is that we all want just a little pass on our sins, a little indulgence. We do. We we, we want someone just to turn a blind eye, don't make a big… Even if we go, this is wrong and I know it's wrong, just don't make a big deal about it, okay? I'll do better next time. We want to pass on our, our sins. We don't want to be in the light. The problem is that's like the, the most unloving and the, the absolutely worst thing that God could do is to leave us in darkness, is it not? You get the sense here as, as John writes this that he knew that for some people in this church, with all that was going on, for some people the word sin itself already was losing meaning. You follow me? That there are some sins that have become so normalized in their culture, in the culture they lived in, even within their church, it's become so normalized that they, they're, they're really not even considering it that bad anymore. Like there were some things that they're going, yeah, you know, I used to think that, uh, you know, that that's not the way that we should live. I, I see that God has said there's another way, a better way, a right way to live, but, 
But, you know, with all the stuff people are saying these days, I look at it, I go, you know, maybe, maybe I just made too much of a deal out of it back then. I didn't understand the complexities of life and the human experience, and so maybe it's not that big of a deal. But John says, yeah, actually, it is a big deal. Every little sin is a very big deal, even if we don't want it to be a very big deal. John says every little sin is a big deal, and what's on the line is our relationship and the integrity of our relationship with God. There's a big problem, and the big problem is our, pro- our proclivity to sin. So what do we do about the big problem of our sin? John gives some examples of what we do when it comes to our sin. He gives two wrong ways we deal with our sin and one right way to deal with our sin. The two wrong ways have to do with us denying sin and its problem. And the one right way has to do with accepting that I am a sinner. I have a sin problem and acknowledging that Jesus is the only and the real solution to my real sin problem. So, I want to talk to you about the two wrong ways. I want you to see this. The two wrong ways we deal with our sin. One of the wrong ways in denying sin as a problem is for us to think that it doesn't really matter that much. Verse 6 indicates that there are people here in this church who are going along saying, I'm a Christian and I'm a part of this church, yet they're walking in darkness in the decisions that they make throughout their life. Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, John says, we lie and we don't practice the truth. So like there are people who say, I love Jesus, but I'll do whatever I want to do. And maybe the mentality is, you know, I'm a really great sinner and God's a really great forgiver, so we're a perfect match for each other. You know, let's just, let's just go on. This is great. But John says, if someone is going along and saying, I belong to Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm a part of his church, that means I'm, I'm, I'm his, I belong to him, his family, and you go and you walk in a way that is completely unchristlike in any regard, John says, if you think this way, you're lying to yourself, he calls it lying to yourself. He says, you're lying about your relationship with Jesus, you're lying about your faith, you're lying about where you've placed your trust. I mean, He's not punching them in the face, but he's helping them to see in the mirror. If you think that you can say, well, I'm a Christian, but do whatever you want, you're just lying to yourself, guys. That's not real Christianity. That's not the real thing. So the first way, wrong way to deal with sin is to deny that it's a problem. Let me show you the second way. Second way is kind of the opposite of the first way. It's not to say, oh, my sin's not that big of a problem. The second way is to say, I don't really sin. It's not an issue for me. I worked through that stuff. Here's verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right? Look at verse 10 now. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I'm not going to go on and on and belabor this because two weeks ago we talked about sin and repentance and we talked about what happens when we face our sin when we were studying Psalm 51. We said there are are pathways that we take. Either we we blame shift and say, well, it's somebody made me sin. The devil made me do it. It's because someone treated me bad once and so that's why I act this way now. Or we deny that we sin or we rationalize our sin or we, what, we repent. That's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I want to make sure you you catch this, though. 
John is not writing this letter to the people who left the church and have rejected the church. He's not writing the letter to the people who worship the goddess Artemis or all of the variety of gods in this area. He's not writing this to people outside. He's writing to this, peop- to this to people inside. He's writing this to people who claim to have fellowship with God and say, Jesus is my homeboy, but I'm going to do whatever I want to do, or I'm going to live and just not deal with my sin. He keeps saying we if we say we and us. He's talking to people like, like you and me, like the people filling the room right now. One pastor commented on verse 10, I love this. He said, John's point is that the claim of sinlessness is not only self-deception, it's also blasphemy. The sentence, I am without sin, amounts to the sentence, God is a liar. That's pretty heavy, right? See, a version of Christianity that denies the reality and the consequences of our sin is not the real thing. It's just not. John says so. A version of Christianity that covers up our sin or tries to hide it by by handling it in our own strength, it's not the real thing. John says so. So what is the real thing? Well, look at verse 9. He tells us what the real thing looks like. He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Doesn't that sound great? If we'll just say, yeah, I do sin, I do mess up, I do the wrong thing. Help me. He is faithful to forgive and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That sounds amazing. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, listen, we have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus Christ the righteous And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those not just of of Ephesus, not just of, of this little region, but of the world, all who turn to Him. This is the real thing. Those who accept the seriousness of their sin, any sin, who accept the seriousness of it and trust Jesus as the real solution to our real sin problem, and Jesus takes away our filth, Jesus He cleanses us. Jesus advocates for us. Jesus is the atonement for our sins. And John uses a word here that is translated as a a very intimidating big word. If you're asked to read the Bible out loud in a group and you look down and see the word propitiation, you have a free pass to say, not it, anytime you come to it. But I want to make sure you understand what it means. Propitiation simply means Jesus satisfied God's holy standard for us when the consequences of our sin fall upon Him. Like you've heard, the wages of sin is what? Yeah, the wages of sin is death. Propitiation is Jesus took that wrath. He took the wages of sin on Himself in His death on the cross, thus satisfying the weight of our sin when we place our faith in Him. Propitiation is Jesus satisfied God's holy standard for us when the consequences of our sin fell on Him on the cross. Too many people who call themselves Christians… If it's not about a style of life, if it's not about politics or moralism, if it actually is about a sin thing, don't you know it's too often about other people's sins? Don't we do that? And we make Christianity into a hammer that we use to fix or to control 
the things in other people and in culture that just offend us. How do you know when you're on the right track when it comes to Christianity and the church? Well, you're on the right track if you're talking about the real Jesus being the real solution to your and my real sin, when we don't make it about how we can try to fix everyone else and get them to live life in the way that we think that, that, that they ought to, but instead, day by day, we're being filled with greater joy and greater gratitude by daily coming in a posture of repentance to God. As they said, daily practice of repentance, which is like the greatest gift that we have from the Lord, that we can come daily to Him and say, Oh Lord, cleanse me. Purify me with hyssop and I will be made clean. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's the greatest gift because what I'm exchanging is all the grossness and the muck of all of my weakness and the things that cause me to limp. In exchange for that, God is giving me life, abundant life, and freedom from sin as the fruit of my salvation in Jesus Christ. How do we know if we're on the right track when it comes to church and Christianity? When it's about the real Jesus as revealed by the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures and in grace and truth by His presence in our lives and when He is the real solution to our real sin. See, the church in Ephesus really needed this message at this moment as they were being torn apart by controversy and confusion and culture wars. They needed a word from John that said, it's all real. Everything about Jesus is real. I saw him. I heard from him. I experienced him, and he's so compelling, and you've got to know him like I know him. They needed this to reorient their mind and their eyes and their hearts on the truth about Christianity before the, the division within them and the oppression outside of them crushed them all together. And probably everybody in this room, every one of us knows someone who's been on a deconstruction journey in recent years when it comes to their faith, when it comes to the church, when it comes to how they view Jesus or do Christianity. Maybe it was you. I've had several moments throughout my life where I've had some deconstruction take place. I don't think it's always a bad thing when someone you know is deconstructing their faith because it's really good. It's really important for us to challenge our faith and make sure that what we've placed our faith in has solid roots, has solid ground, and that we haven't placed our faith in something that we shouldn't have placed faith in. That's good. But as we watch and we participate in the deconstruction of the church in our time, Listen, before you lose your faith, before you break up with your friends and break up with your family members over culture wars, understand that 1 John invites us to really consider what it is our faith has been built on all along. That's where you should start when it comes to deconstructing your faith. It should start with, remember the dogs? It should start with asking the question, am I like the first dog who actually saw something wonderful? And took off in hot pursuit? Or were we like the other five dogs? You know, those who saw something happening and jumped up and went running with them and we went running with the pack and we barked and we ran and we were part of the group for a while. But, but after a while, we really didn't know what we were even doing or why we were even out there in the woods running around any longer. And so we became tired and unsatisfied and, and, and just said, man, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. And, and this morning, I, um, I want to read to you just this little line from this book, The Gospel by Ray Ortland. 
Um, understand, when John wrote 1 John, this wasn't a woodshed moment for them. He wasn't taking them out back and berating them because they struggled in their faith. He was inviting them into something wonderful. He said, we're proclaiming these things to you so that you would have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with God, and we're doing this so our joy should be made complete. He's inviting them into something. Now listen to this. This is what they're being invited to. This book's called The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty beauty that's inerrant in Christ. In this new kind of community that Jesus has formed, which only the gospel can create, desperate sinners coming to Christ have nothing to fear. They're finally safe. They can open up about what's really going on in their lives. They can find healing for the past, hope for the future. This new kind of church, it feels like heaven on earth. And the way to get there is not by slick packaging, but by gospel rebuilding. It's what the doctrine is for, building a new kind of community to compel the attention of the world. And he adds this line. I want you to hear this. When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, that church, oh my goodness, that'll be powerful. Can you see that? This morning, I I just, it would be my greatest hope and desire that this series would open with us having an honest look at why we call ourselves Christian and really assessing and evaluating. Have we had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ or did we just go chasing the other dog? And so I set up an email address. It's dogs at legacychurch.org. You won't forget that one. Dogs at legacychurch.org. Here's what I'd love for you to do. I just... I'd love for every person in this room to email me at that email address this week. It goes to me and me only. I'd love for you to take a few moments this week and to assess, am I like the first dog? I've had a personal encounter with something wonderful and life-changing. I walk with Christ. Or is it true that I I got involved in church because my family was involved in church or my friends were involved in church or because, you know, it seemed like church people had some of the same kind of core values I had, and we kind of had the same style of life, and so, you know, I, I fit there, and that's why I'm, I'm here. If you would be brave enough to shoot me an email at dogs at legacychurch.org, I would love nothing more than to, to join you by name and praying that the real Jesus would just become real and compelling in your experience. I'd love to to engage with you, to talk with you about where you are in your walk with Jesus in this season of life. Even if you're on a deconstructing journey or if it's your kid or your friend or or someone in your life group that you've seen walk away from church, I, I would love to engage in this moment with you. And so do that. This week, assess in every person here. Like, I, I want all the emails. And, and everyone online, I want all the emails this week. And, and I'd love to begin that conversation in a new way with you. But w- would you do this with me? Would you close your eyes and, and bow your head? I'm super aware in my own life and in my own circles that there are just a lot of us who, <laughs> it's like we came with the building or we came with the music or something, but but a relationship with Jesus Christ has been far from us. And if that's you this morning, I think today would be an amazing day. It could be exactly the right moment. For you to be like the guy who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, just help my unbelief. 
this morning to be the day that you say, golly, I have made religion and spirituality about so many things, but, but a person, that's different. If that's you this morning, I'm going to lead a prayer. And after I say amen, I'm going to go to the back of the room and I'll be available. Patrick will be back there too. If anyone wants to visit or to pray together, but I'm going to say a prayer and then I'm going to leave this time over to you. So Father, this morning, one for for saints, I pray that you would encourage us and give us hope and faith, restore to us the joy of our salvation. And for any who, maybe this is the first time that they have with truly open eyes and open hearts contemplated that Christianity is all about a singular person who is God, who lived, died, resurrected, who appeased the wages of sin and gives life. I pray, Father, this morning that you would give them the faith to trust in Jesus today. And maybe you might repeat this prayer silently where you are. God, I know that I am a sinner. There's no denying it. There's no blaming others. There's no rationalizing it. There's brokenness in my life. I know that Only through Jesus can I experience healing. Jesus, I need you, the way, the truth, and the life. Today, would you be my Savior and my King? In Jesus' name, amen.